Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Escape the ordinary with Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. How is Level 3 going for you, Dubliners? We're hanging in there. Some of us by a thread. I have a sniffly, snuffly daughter at home today and another one in school but the schools seem to be doing a very good job so far there's a few clusters here and there but let's all of us try to make these three weeks count and just limit our contacts and do what the experts are telling us I know there's a lot of covid fatigue out there but maybe we can get out of level three and I hope wherever you are in the country, that you're managing okay. Some good news I heard today is that Dunn stores are thinking of rolling out a grocery delivery service, which I think will be excellent for many of us. And as someone said on Twitter earlier, if pennies would start delivering, then that would really be excellent or possibly for some of us quite dangerous. Anyway, as always, do get in touch with us if there's anything you think we should be covering. We love hearing from you by email thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on Twitter and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. And we got a really lovely review on Apple Podcasts that I wanted to bring to you because it's really nice to get feedback like this, um, especially in these kind of weary times. Uh, so this reviewer, we don't have her name, but maybe she'll get in touch and let us know. She says, I have the great privilege to run in Liberty State Park in Jersey City, New Jersey, with a view of the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. With a husband and child at home, it's the only time I'm ever alone and I spend it very often listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I laugh, cry, rage, learn. I'm thankful for this space that dives into all the joys and outrages of being a woman in this world. Thank you to everyone who makes this podcast possible. And I'm so glad to hear that. As I said, we don't have a name, but whoever you are, and if you're running there in lovely Jersey City, looking at Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty, we're thinking of you and we're really grateful. And do email us to let us know anything you'd like to talk about the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Now, back in early April, which seems a very long time ago now, we had consultant anaesthetist at University Hospital Limerick, Dr. Catherine Motherway on the podcast. And we got a great response from you to her. She's got a huge job on the front line of the health service in these very worrying and difficult times. But she's a woman who's also full of common sense and humanity. So we wanted to have her back on. And actually, coincidentally, I saw an article today in The Guardian that reports that women's voices are being drowned out on a global level when it comes to the pandemic. A new report commissioned by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation 
shows how women have been, quotes, worryingly marginalised in reporting of the coronavirus. And it's partly due to the warlike framing of the pandemic. And you'll notice there's a lot of that lingo around, you know, fights and battles and all of that kind of thing. So it's being framed as a kind of a world war style um, situation. And the report analysed stories across six countries and they found that each woman's voice in news coverage of the crisis is drowned out by at least three men. Well, the women's podcast is about amplifying women's voices, as you know. And today we have Catherine Motherway back on to give her take on where we are now. If everybody could do the physical distancing, the hand washing, the mask wearing, and actually realising that you can't go to work anymore with a cold, then we would actually make progress, I think. And we have made progress, in fairness, like at one point in in April, there was 90 admissions to intensive care in one week. We spoke about the new restrictions, the rise in anti-mask protests and big gatherings and her hopes and fears as we face into a winter of living with the virus. I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with the wonderful Dr Catherine Motherway. Catherine, thank you very much for joining us again. It's last April since we spoke to you. Uh, We were experiencing a peak of coronavirus cases. We've been through a lot since then, but now the cases are on the rise and we just wanted to get you back on for some common sense, for some good advice and an assessment from your point of view as a consultant anaesthetist in the University Hospital Limerick and past president of the Intensive Care Society of Ireland. So what do you think of where we are now, Catherine? I think we all knew that when we started moving around again, we would see um, some recurrence of COVID. Um, That was always going to be the case. But what we're all hoping, I think, is that we learned a lot of stuff during the lockdown. We learned, I hope, that this virus passes from person to person, predominantly. We know that the basic tenets of washing your hands, keeping your distance and now wearing a mask, which wasn't quite as clear when I spoke to you the last time, in fairness, um, is, is really quite important. And I think that we have to, as a nation, and many cultures have to change the way we live. And we have done that to a degree, but we are still finding it hard, I think. And I don't think any of us thought it was going to last as long as it has. We're all, you know, we all want normality back, but this famous word, the new normal, which is driving us all insane, um, I I think is something that we have to live with. And I think the more we realise that it's our personal behaviour that can control this, the more we will have more normal So if we want to go out to a restaurant to have dinner with somebody, we do have to continue to wash our hands, keep our distance, limit our social context as much as we can. So you have to try and pick and choose the really important people in your life that you actually need to meet, your core group, and try and stick to those. And if you need to meet people outside of that core group, be really, really careful about the physical distancing You can still say hello to people. I live in the country. I can obviously talk to a farmer in a field. I can talk to my neighbour over the fence. I walk with my neighbour almost daily if I'm at home. We walk on either side of the road. We we don't necessarily, you know, stay close to each other. We're really quite careful. And we've been that way since the start of the pandemic. And, And I think people are worrying. I spoke to a relative today who has to go to the United Kingdom and she's terrified. And I said, don't be terrified. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. When you go to over there, go into your daughter's house and stay there and don't leave, um, you know, and 
when you come back, isolate yourself. That's what you have to do. But wash your hands and be really careful. And she has to go. She's not going for the crack. She has to go for a, re- a very good reason. So y- we can do things, but we can do them safely. And I think if everybody realised that, they'd worry a slight bit less. And if everybody could do the physical distancing, the hand washing, the mask wearing, and actually realising that you can't go to work anymore with a cold, um, then we would actually, you know, make progress, I think. And we have made progress, in fairness. Like at one point in, in April, there was 90 admissions to intensive care in one week. Now we're seeing a rise in cases now. And one of the things that bothers me is I think people began to think that the virus has changed that it's not as bad as before. And it hasn't changed. It's just that the people who are getting the disease, who probably were always getting it, the ones that we're now finding are younger. And most young people will not generally get very sick. Some will, a very small percentage, but most won't. But the worry that the public health doctors have and I have is that young people don't live in an isolated world. They have families they have relatives, they have grandparents, they have brothers and sisters. So if they get the disease and if they don't know they have it, they may unwillingly transmit it to someone near and dear to them or indeed to a total stranger. And young people are the people who have to go out and work. I mean, young people are, you know, they have to go out and work, they have to go and work and they they need to, to mix to a degree. So I think if we all realise we have to make a really big change, but if we do that, we will be able to have more fun in a different way. I think that will hopefully help us get by. Catherine, on a practical level for you day to day in your work, because last time we spoke to you, we were talking about people uh, dying in ICU, people not being able to comfort relatives and see them before they died and all those kind of things. We spoke about um, memory boxes, you know, people who work in the ICU trying to help relatives by saying this was the last moments of your loved one's life, all those kind of things. You know, we're seeing that I think when I spoke to you, there was um, 140 people in ICU. We're looking at 19 now. So those numbers have reduced a lot. But what are you worried about in terms of all of that? Do you see because the numbers are rising slowly that, you know, we could be back where we were? Is that your fear? Oh, yes, we're all worried about that. I'm hoping not, because now we can find all of the cases and obviously they're going to use local restrictions to try and limit social interactions. But obviously you'd worry about anybody getting this disease. It's particularly unpleasant. Um, We were fairly significantly, um, we had had 160 people in ICU at one point at at the height of this pandemic. One hopes we don't go back there. We still don't have a huge number of additional ICU beds. Um, like it was reported on radio that we had doubled our ICU bed capacity. We have not. Um, I'm not quite sure how that got into people's minds. That is not the case. We have um, always been had difficulty in terms of intensive care beds in Ireland. We have very few per head of population. We run generally in the winter well over 90% occupancy when we should be running at 70% occupancy to cope for things like this. And we had to to cope the last time round, shut down elective scheduled work and people need their elective scheduled work done. We can't shut that down for the next year, year and a half. So we need to continue to treat the people who have elective scheduled work and obviously to treat those people who will unfortunately get sick with COVID. In relation to the end of life, that was very difficult at the beginning. We are now trying to get people in near the end of life um, in the units um, because we have more PPE available and we're able to give it to them. It's still very difficult for them, like to visit your relative and be all gowned up and stuck in a mask. It's it's 
it's not easy for families. Um, but we are trying very hard to make sure that people are with them at the end of life. But but it's still very, very difficult. It's always difficult when you lose a relative in ICU. It's always difficult to lose a relative, but um, it's particularly difficult in the intensive care setting. Um, so because you watch people trying to keep them going and you swing from hope to despair to hope and then sometimes it just doesn't work and it's, it's it's always very difficult for people I have to say for families. Something else that happened since we spoke was Golfgate and I'm interested in your reaction to that. Oh yes right Golfgate. I, um, I actually gave a, a, an interview on that and I think that those people did not think. I, I, I think we should use that as a learning experience I think they were told it was fine and they just didn't think. They just didn't think. I, I mean, some people chose to think that it was being arrogant and stuff like that. I, I don't think it was that. I just think they were told it's fine and off in they went and they just didn't think. And now they have thought. Obviously, um, people have paid a significant price in terms of um, losing jobs and positions and stuff like that. I think they all just forgot I mean, I, I, it was it was frankly um, quite amazing. I mean, my husband said it was a bit like sheep. My husband's a farmer. When one sheep goes into the field, they all, they all, all the other sheep follow, if you know what I mean. And I'm not suggesting in any shape or form that these poor people are like sheep. But I just think they just didn't think. And we should learn. We should all learn from that. You should learn to question, you know, is this safe? Should we be doing this? Is this a good idea? And if it's not a good idea... Don't do it. So, like, if you go to the restaurant and it's too crowded, just don't go in. If you go to the pub and it doesn't look like they're doing the business, don't go in because it's a risk to you. And also you could be a risk to all of those people in there if you are unwillingly carrying this virus around with you. So I just think that they just didn't think. And I think that everybody will have learned from that. I think it was unfortunate for those people who actually lost their jobs. I, I wouldn't necessarily like to hang people out to dry, but I do think that we've all learned from that and we all now know that you can't do things like that. And I just, it was just a bit sad. And I think it's important that we just all realise that I think we all should learn from it and they've, they've paid the price, it's done, it's dusted, leave it where it is, I think. It's what um, Oprah calls a teachable moment. I think that's a good way to look at it. Speaking of people not thinking or making their own calls... You know, we've seen a number of things recently. We've seen the rave in the Oliver Bond Flats, another rave up in a farmer's field in Meath. Um, there's people who are out there annoyed and vocally annoyed about wearing face masks. Um, some prominent people, like I'm thinking of Van Morrison. Um, so there's all of that going on. When you see that happening, as someone who's really at the coal face, what are you thinking? In relation to the raves, I, God knows I'm thinking I'm very sorry for the younger generation because it is we're a social animal. And particularly when we're younger, particularly when we're trying to find a partner, particularly when, like I can go home to my husband, I go to work, I go home to my husband. So my life has changed, but it hasn't changed that much. I, if I was 20 years old and looking for a partner, I think I would find this very, very, very hard. So I have a degree of sympathy. And I think what we should do as a community and a population is to communicate with younger people, younger leaders, and see how we can find ways for them to socialise safely. 
Um, and have and you know and and frankly admit and and talk to people about finding a partner, um you know nobody mentions the word sex anywhere in the middle of this conversation. But if you're looking to find a sexual partner at the moment and you're younger, it is extremely difficult. I mean, like before there were other issues, and now there's COVID added to the whole other thing about it. So and it's you generally like to meet someone, get to know them, and that's all rather difficult at a two meter distance. Um, particularly when you have limited access to large crowds. So I think we should talk to younger people and younger leaders and particularly people like the students' unions and university and stuff like that. They they have a big challenge ahead of them because normally college is a rite of passage for young people and they get to meet loads of different people. It's a way of getting away from home. When I was younger, the three days at Christmas was lovely and then by St. Stephen's night, you just wanted to go out. You had had enough of your family. You just want to leave. So it's... It's 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 very difficult for 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 younger people. So I think we need to inform people about the risks, and then communicate with them about ways and means of actually continuing to have some form of social distance and safe gatherings without actually accelerating the transmission of the disease, and driving it underground to, into raves is a difficulty, and um, it's something we should actually talk about and say how can we do this better? There must be a way. When we talk about, you've mentioned it earlier about the the people who are getting it now are younger and we know that um, and people not getting as sick as, say, people who are more vulnerable in various ways. And so there is some people talking about, look, the people who need to shield are shielding. They're being very, very careful. They're looking out for themselves. So is there anything in this kind of herd immunity thing that we saw happening in Sweden that countries where, look, it's going to we're going to have to live with it. People are going to get it. And we kind of just need to accept that. Where are you on that uh, school of thought? Well, the difference between us and Sweden is Sweden is a much better healthcare resource than we have. And the Swedish population are different to us. I mean, I, I think different populations are different. It strikes me that they have a lot of living on their own. They can actually shield. They don't have much intergenerational living. And they're um, they're a very nice polite, obeying the rules type of society from my experience of them. And they also had something like three times the ICU admissions we had at one point during this pandemic. And they also had deaths in their elderly population. But they generally tend to be less touchy-feely than us, I think. So, I mean, they, they're they just slightly different and they're a different population. I, we do know that everybody, you know, eventually we get this disease. But the whole point in the pandemic is to flatten the curve for two reasons. You flatten the curve to stop everybody getting sick all at once. So we don't have an overwhelming of our healthcare resources. But also it means that if you get the disease later on the pandemic, we will have no, more knowledge about how to deal with it. More likelihood of there being a vaccine or a disease modifying agent. About the only downside is if you're much older, the older you get, the higher your risk. I mean, so generally it's better to get a disease in a pandemic later on in the pandemic because people will know more about it. Because at the beginning, we didn't know a lot about it and we are learning and learning a lot about it. But um, so we do know that people will get it. And eventually this term herd immunity, which is used more for vaccinations, in fact, than for um, than, than for this, will help. But we don't know... Actually, if having it once is protection, we don't know that yet. We don't know if you can get it a second time. We still don't know a lot about it. So for the moment, I'd prefer not to get it at all. So I'd try and prevent myself from getting it. And for some young people, it does make them quite sick. And there have been a number of high profile young people on the media telling us how unwell they were and how it took them a long time to get better. And there have been, you know, some young people who required hospitalisation and who required critical care. So it's not... 
there's no disease that's safe, really. But obviously, the younger you are, the safer you are. And the older you are, the more difficult it is. And older people are shielding, but older people do have to go out and about and they have to shop and they have to get their food and they have to meet their younger relatives. Like, you're going to meet your grandparents or your parents. I mean, you, you do have to meet them at some point in time. We're not going to all live apart for the next two or three years. So we're all going to have to get on with living together. So the less disease there is in transmission, the easier it is for older people to be safe. Catherine, you said something there a second ago. I just want to make sure I heard you right, that we're all going to get it. Is that what you said? We know everybody's going to get it. Eventually, it would appear that we're this, I mean, eventually this disease will transmit and continue to transmit unless we have a vaccine. And the work on the vaccine, to be honest with you, I'm not an expert. They tell me that'll be what, the middle of next year. Um, And if there is a vaccine, then they will try and have to produce the vaccine and make sure that everybody in the world gets access to the vaccine. Not just the rich countries, but it'll have to be the rich countries and the poor countries because you need to vaccinate the whole population of the world, not just one country rather than another. So un- until we have a vaccine, this disease will continue to move through our populations, essentially, and hopefully we will get a vaccine. Um, I don't know enough about vaccines to be an expert on that for you, Roisin. You'd have to talk to the Luke O'Neills of this world, um, who seem to be quite optimistic that one will happen. But obviously, once they get one, then they have to produce it. And producing a vaccine for the whole world population is not without its challenges, both in terms of production and in terms of money. Dublin is in level three now and possibly yourselves there in Limerick and a few other counties are going to be moving to to level three. The big tension, I think, and it's really heartbreaking for restaurateurs, for the economy generally. The big tension is that, you know, how much more can the economy take? How much more crippled can it be? Uh, while we try to flatten the curve, suppress the virus, whatever way we want to say it. Are you conscious of that? I presume you have colleagues and friends and various people in your life who own businesses who are who are worried about that aspect. We all are, because I suppose we all have to be. What do you think? I got a very conscious of that. For the duration of the lockdown, I actually had a takeaway from my favourite restaurant once a week. And I wouldn't normally go to it once a week, but we had a takeaway once a week. So just to keep them in business. And in fact, they, they, they did quite well in our local restaurant. But so and I, and I think I would encourage people to support that. I think that the less transmission of the disease we have, the more businesses can open. So in fact, the personal things that we do is what will allow businesses to open. So going for your pint and having it in a socially distant manner will be fine if you do it safely and will keep the pub open or going for your your meal. But going into a very crowded place and perhaps forgetting the rules and regulations will increase transmission potentially. And we know that happens from international evidence. So you just, it's our personal behaviour that will allow the economy to open, essentially. And also things like poverty are a problem. People give out about the meat factories, but many of those people are poorly paid, have no sick leave, had to go to work and live in crowded circumstances because they can't afford to rent one house for themselves. They are and they're often migrants um, and they work very hard and they don't really have much options. So if there isn't good sick pay, people will go to work because they have to feed themselves and they don't realise the importance of it. So we need to deal with social inequity. We need to all do the personal things and... I am absolutely for people in the tourist industry, people in the um, 
flight industry, in the all of those industries are on their knees. And I think we just have to support them as much as we can by whatever economic means that clever economists can do this quantitative easing to talk about. Because we, we need planes to come in out of Ireland to give us supplies. We need, essentially, we need businesses to continue to thrive. But they can't do that unless we all live in as safe a manner as possible. So that's essentially it. If we all do what we're supposed to do, we will be able to open them to a degree. Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, a selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Something else that's happened since we spoke is something very happy in my life is the school's opened and my children are back at school. We had a couple of days last week where I've twins. One of them had a cold, didn't go in. She got better the next couple of days. Another one didn't go in. Um, But other than that, it seems to have touch wood gone quite smoothly. What's your observations about the schools being back? No, I'm, I don't have school and children, do, but I do have a teacher of it who is a child. So I, I think it's going reasonably well. Um, I, I know there, uh, you know, there's worries both from parents and from teachers about this and they're all doing their level best. But I think it is really important that our children go back to school, both from an educational point of view, from the parents' sanity point of view and from their socialisation. And I think they're doing their level best to do it very well. And thus far, it's going OK. It is going to be difficult. And Mary Favier gave some very good advice, if I remember rightly, when they were opening it up on uh, one of the Neffet conferences one night about what to do with the cold and, you know, whether or not to, you know, ring the GP. And it is going to challenge the testing system a while. It's going to challenge, um, you know, some of my colleagues, the children are going to school and one or two of them have to ring up one day, sorry, can't come in, child is cold, getting tested. And you go, yeah, yeah, OK, we'll try and sort it. So there will be a bit of that. So there will be spillover for a while while we get used to it. Um, um, but like, they have to go back to school. Like, we have to try and keep things open. And the only way to do that is to do the personal stuff ourselves. That's the only way to do it. Behaviour wise, how have you, have you felt? Um, what have you observed about how people are complying? Because I have some people even in within my own family and close circle who are quite anti-lockdown, quite sceptical, um, not in a conspiracy theory way necessarily, but just more about the damage it's doing to to our economy and perhaps whether the government strategy has been right all the way. It's hard to have those conversations because we're all trying to do the right thing and we're all trying to protect each other. Um, and yet you have some people quite cynical and sceptical about it too. Have you had any of those conversations or how are you finding that? Well, not necessarily within my own family as it happens. But yeah, with some people, yes, they're sceptical. I mean, obviously, the early closure of the schools really bothered some people. They wanted the schools to stay open, um, which they did in other countries. And people keep pointing to country A and country B and country C. And I think we're all moving our way through this. And I just say, look, let's... Like it was, I remember talking to somebody about the planes and we'll test them when they go off the plane. I said, yeah, but what if they got it on the plane? Then it'll be negative and then they'll get off the plane. You know what I mean? So I've had lots of different conversations with people and I can see people's points of view. And like this is what our first really, really decent pandemic in what, 90 years. So, I mean, and we're a much different society than we were during the, the pandemic in 1916. I mean, the 2010 pandemic was different because quite a number of the population had immunity to that. The older population did. Um, so that was quite a different disease. So, I, I mean, I just talk it out with them. I mean, I don't necessarily think that anybody has one right answer and we are going to all make mistakes 
But the one thing that isn't a mistake is, you know, trying to limit your interactions with other people while we try to work our way through this. And I agree with everybody that trying to open up the society is really good and to do it as safely as possible would be excellent. And I have one husband I'd say was looking forward to a pint on Thursday night <laughs> when he gets to it. Um, you have quite an intensive job in the intensive uh, care units. Um, have you managed to have some time out? Because we were all mad going for our staycations and trying to holiday at home. Well, some of us were and some of us were jetting off anyway, it seems. Um how did you get some time out over the summer? I took two weeks off there recently. We were practicing for a charity cycle, so I had to put in some time on a bike to learn how to cycle. We cycled from a number of us in the ICU cycled from all the ICUs in Ireland up to Dublin to raise some money from some charities. So um, and a friend of my uh, my sister's gave us the use of a house down in Spanish Point for a few days. And over the summer, my mother was ill, so I was down in Cork quite a bit with her. So it was, so I had that time as well. So it was good to be with her at that stage. So you're um, refreshed and restored, are you? Ah, yeah, as anyone is, essentially, yes. Catherine, looking ahead to winter, we don't know if Christmas is going to be completely cancelled. It will certainly be a very different Christmas, I think, to the ones we've been used to. What are your fears I suppose and what are your hopes for how things might pan out because I'm thinking about the flu particularly because that's the other thing that's going to come into play and how is that going to affect everything? Well obviously the flu vaccine will hopefully have a big take up and obviously we'll get enough of it and deliveries of it I'd say will be challenging so we'll encourage everybody to have the flu vaccine who needs to get the flu vaccine. We will hopefully see less of the flu if people do the social distancing correctly because um, obviously flu spreads in the same way as COVID and they did apparently in the Southern Hemisphere have a relatively mild flu season and we generally tend to follow them. Now we're talking about a population in Australia who did lock down quite effectively so hopefully we will see less of the flu but it does worry every one of us in the health service because every winter um, we have a significant influx of people with respiratory illnesses. So we are worried about capacity, both for general hospital beds, and because we're meant to run at less capacity, in theory, at 85%. Um, That's a wonderful theory. Um, But if people are sick and waiting to come in the door, you can't really leave them waiting. If you have a bed, you put them in it. And we're also worried about critical care capacity. There's a, you know, we got an extra... 40 beds temporarily at the start of this. We still haven't received permanent funding for them, but they are open at the moment and hopefully they will remain open for the duration. So we do have a worry about our capacity to cope. But our hope is that if everybody, you know, complies with the guidelines, that we will, you know, do better. And we did get some extra beds and there are some extra beds coming on stream. And there's this famous winter plan, which will hopefully be published in the near future. And apparently they got significant funding from the government for that. So it'd be interesting to see what's in that. I wanted to ask you about something and one of your colleagues, a consultant paediatrician in the Bon Secures in Cork, Dr. Neve Lynch, has been speaking to the examiner um, and she is she's sounding quite angry and, you know, upset at the moment. She says, I will not go to war against COVID again or don my hero scrubs because guess what? This is not a battle or a war. COVID-19 is not an enemy. It's a virus that causes an illness. We don't battle the flu. We try to avoid it through hand washing, cough etiquette and thankfully vaccination. And she's really, really trying to get people to 
follow uh, the guidelines and to stop thinking of it in that way. What, what do you think about what she said there? Well, I'm not necessarily I put it angrily, but um, I think it's much better to avoid. Well, I don't know. It felt, it felt like that to me. Maybe I'm, I'm getting the wrong tone. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know the lady, but I think that it is much better to avoid getting a disease and not having it than actually trying to battle it. So I would be of the view that avoiding it would be the plan and not getting it would be the plan. And to do that, the best way you can do it is to adhere to the current public health guidance. Now, with the best win of the world, some of us has to go to work and some of us will get it. Obviously, healthcare workers had a significant incidence of the disease. Some people got that in work. Some people got that in, you know, somewhere else socially. You know, it does. You know, not, not everybody got it at work. And, you know, our People in the meat factories will have got it at work and congregated settings are a risk for all of us. So when you go into those closed spaces, really think about it. And, you know, and sometimes you have no choice. You have to go into the supermarket, but, you know, wear your mask, keep your distance, queue orderly and to make sure that you don't cough and splutter on somebody else and that they don't cough and splutter on you, basically. So and to do that, you just keep your two metres away from them. So I think she is correct in that you're better off not battling it. And, and I think the battle that people refer to possibly is the battle not to, to reduce the curve. That, that's the battle we need to have just to try and flatten the curve and limit the transmission. Um, obviously, when you get it, it's a disease. And hopefully your immune system will help you. And if not, you'll have to attend to us poor doctors and hopefully we will help you by giving you oxygen and various medications as it goes along. I think she is a little bit angry, Catherine, because she says, um, and so my colleagues and I face into a miserable winter, not as heroes because we didn't win or lose any battle. We just got lazy as a society. Would you agree with her on that one? Oh, I don't know if I'd say the word lazy is appropriate. I think the word complacency is probably more appropriate in that everybody saw the numbers going down and I think a lot of people thought it was gone. And I actually think this virus is so infectious that if there's one or two people left on the planet with it and the rest of us are not immune, then guess what? It's going to come back because it started with one person somewhere. Think about it. We had... You know, I don't know. I know how many imported cases we have in the beginning of April, but that has resulted in, I maybe we had fifty or sixty or whatever initially, and and that has resulted in well over thirty thousand known cases, and it's probably well over three and four times that actually. Um, you know, seventeen thousand people have lost their lives, and um, you know, a lot of people have been very sick. So it's a very infectious disease. When you see the numbers going down, this is not the time to relax. It's the time to keep doing what you're doing, but what you're doing is working. So if the numbers relax, it get better, it's because what we're doing is working. So then we just keep doing it and not don't stop doing it because that means it'll come back again. If only one or two people have it, it'll still come back again because it's very, very infectious. Repair. If you were to address finally, Catherine, the people listening who are just fed up and I think there's a lot of us there's tired exhausted just finding the strain of living in this way kind of a bit much is there anything you would say to kind of g us up or to give us a little bit of uh, courage and motivation as we face into what could be quite a miserable winter time it yeah it, it might be a miserable winter time but we actually live in a lovely country we have really good food we have really nice fresh food we like we have access thus far to reasonably, you know, the weather hasn't been 
too terrible recently. It wasn't great over the summer. It was wonderful during the first lockdown. And I, and I think we just need to find happiness in each other and just keep on going and just do the thank your, you know, you know count your blessings type of a thing. Because we, we, we live in a reasonably well um, resourced economy. Um, there are, in fairness, some people who will find that very hard to take when they don't have work at the moment, but hopefully they will continue to get supported by the government. And hopefully, you know, they will continue to have forbearance from those people for whom they, you know, mortgages and things like that will continue to be carried over because I'm quite sure there's a large number of people worried. But we actually all need to keep each other safe. And, you know, that's, you know, we you could live in a lot of worse places than, than Ireland at the moment. And in general, we're very nice people to each other and people have been very supportive of each other and... We just have to keep going and, you know, count your blessings. You know, if you're if it is a miserable winter, at least you're sitting by the fire inside, hopefully. You might, you know, be able to either have a nice cup of tea or a nice hot whiskey or whatever it is your is your tonic, be it a cup of tea or a small glass of whiskey or something like that in the evening. And just give thanks for your blessings, if you want to call them that, or your things that are good, essentially. Because, you know, generally we live in a nice country and I obviously live out rurally. Those people who live in the city can actually get out places, hopefully, and there's nice places to go. And if we actually do it all really carefully, we can try and entertain ourselves, hopefully. OK, well, Catherine, we'll have you on in another few months and we'll see where we are then. And hopefully, hopefully. we might be in a bit of a God. better place. Let's keep the glass half full for the end of the conversation. We will indeed. All right. Thanks so much, Catherine. And that was Dr. Catherine Motherway there. It's always a pleasure to talk to her. There's something very comforting about her, I find. And most importantly, she knows what she's talking about. I'd actually like to see her on more discussion programmes and more women. I think it's a point worth making. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.